1: I'm really curious how David will approach this because it's not like the Mets are one or two players away uh, Systematically they've made a lot of progress with their player development system and the trades that they made So I'm real curious what you know how her approach this. but take a step back BK now think about what this day means for David and his family his mom and dad like he grew up a Met fan grew up in, in New York listened to the games on the radio. I read a story used to go to bed at night listening to the games on radio And so now he gets to come back and be the president of baseball operations for the team he grew up following. I mean, what a cool story for him and his family. What a a day of celebration for him.
2: So this was, um, I guess, the target from Steve Cohen, who thinks like a general manager, and that David Stearns was running a successful outfit with Milwaukee. He took this year off. Was that in preparation to take this job?
1: You know, looking back on it, I I believe David and what he said that he just needed a year off. You know, I talked about it. The job is such a highly stressful job to be able to take a year off and kind of recharge your batteries to jump back in. The challenges he'll have here in the New York area running the Mets. I think it's really set him up to be very successful because he really got a chance to not just disconnect, to look back at all the decisions he made. Everything he did, do an autopsy on everything and strategically say, OK, I did this really well, but I didn't do this as well. I'll change that the next opportunity I get. So I think it's his mind space right now is probably in a really good space. mentioned it. Andy, you reported that Billy Epler is staying on as general manager. So how is the front yep. office dynamic going to work?
3: Well, first of all, I'd always heard that for Steve Cohen to hire somebody, that person had better be willing to work with Billy Epler, because Epler and Cohen uh, have a really good relationship, personally and professionally. So that was always going to be uh, the way it had to be. And then you have to figure out, if you're the Mets now, exactly how they divide up the responsibilities. This works in plenty of organizations. It's actually a fairly common setup now. You have a president of baseball operations and a GM, just off the top of my head, in Minnesota, in Boston, in Philadelphia. Uh, oftentimes, that the way those are divided up, that, determ- that depends on what those two individuals feel are their strengths and weaknesses, what they want to do, what tasks they want to fill. And I'm sure that Epler and Cohen and Stearns are still working that out. But the way to generalize this, and I'd be interested if Jim agrees, but the way I understand it is the president of baseball operations tends to be a very big-picture thinker, obviously the final decider. Everything ultimately flows up to and reports to them. The general manager, actually, and this is these are really Billy Epler's strengths as an executive— He's in the weeds. He or she is in the weeds It's somebody who is doing game planning, talking to agents, talking to other GMs about trades, doing all that day to day stuff, whereas the president is more of an overseer. That's a general uh, uh, structure. But it also, of course, like I said, just depends on how those two individuals want to work together and divide it up.
4: You know, I think a lot of that too is like like you said, there's their overall strength. So Billy has those strengths. Obviously, David, you know, is uh, is kind of a broader thinker. Um, and not that Billy isn't, but that's you know, David's uh, uh strengths. He's a uh, he's creative in some of the deals that he has uh that he has uh, worked up. Uh he's been able to figure out how to win with a smaller payroll, mid market payroll to small market payroll. And so, you know, I think to your point what Andy was saying, you know, the Dodgers, you know, with Andrew Freeman and Brandon Gomes, like Almost every organization these days has two layers. Um, And, you know, there's some way, in some ways, it might be title inflation, but I don't think so in this particular case. You have guys that understand the job really well and have a ton of experience. Uh, Obviously, you love Billy Epler's, you know, scouting background as well. So I think it'll end up being a really good fit. And they have a prior uh pri- they've had prior relationships maybe that's been overstated maybe a little bit too but they've known each other for a long time because they've been in the in the game and in the in those front offices during the same period
1: of time i, I love the trio smarts guts and money we talk about cohen stearns and epler of course
2: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday, September the 17th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and to the show Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, Talking Mets Podcast.com. No G, Mike Silvat, Talking Mets Podcast.com. You can get me on Instagram. Talking Mets No G, and I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network, as well as risingapple.com. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast, as mercifully the season, the end of the season is right in front of us. Just a couple of more weeks to go. Mets heading out to their final road trip before they end the season at City Field. A couple of more weeks to go of extended garbage time. As has been the case since the trade deadline. Mets to continue to give us some news, some things to talk about. Just a couple of days after we speculated that David Stearns was on the way, David Stearns is here unofficially. He'll be named team president on October 2nd when the season ends. I'm sure there'll be some sort of press conference shortly after the season to announce his hire, and we'll get more deeper into that. We'll hear from him. You know, right now it's all speculation. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean for Pete Alonso? What does that mean for Buck Showalter? I'll dive into that in this open. And then we all loved him. He was only here for a short period of time. Uh, I'm going to go into the vault. I have a pretty cool segment. You may have heard this segment. You could obviously go on the uh, app, you know, the Apple app or Spotify and search and go back about three or four years. But the Mets honored Bartolo Colon, who announced his retirement today. I thought it was a little weird, the obsession with Colon, but it was nice how they— Gave him his day. It seems like he has this connection with the Mets and the fans. But back in uh, 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, I had a chance to interview Michael Stall. Michael wrote a book, Big Sexy, about Bartolo Colon, and had a chance to talk about Bartolo. Um, you know, during that time, it was in the basically in the middle of the spring. There was no baseball. The pandemic was just starting and raging, and. We needed some content, and fortunately, Michael was able to come up with this great project. We reminisced about Bartolo Colon, so I'll go into the vault, and uh, from time to time, we do that, and we'll replay that May of 2020 interview between Michael Stahl, the author of the book Big Sexy, and uh, away we go. So, the Mets now have a president of baseball operations, David Stern, and look, I've gone back to the beginning of the Cohen ownership, and... Since Steve Cohen took over after the 2020 pandemic season, he's pretty much, from a standpoint of of us covering him and Mets fans, he's given you what you wanted. All that time under Fred Wilpon and Jeff Wilpon, you never felt the Mets went that extra mile to spend. They never seemed to be in on, for the most part, big free agents. It was always a pipe dream. I mean, think about it. Just a couple of years earlier, would you ever have thought the Mets and back-to-back winners could – sell and sign Mark Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, Hall of Famers. I know it didn't work out the way we wanted, but would you think that the Mets would be in and signing those those kind of pitchers? And the winner before that, they were in on the top pitcher on the free agent market, Trevor Bauer, lost out to the Dodgers on that, thankfully for them. They've dodged a couple of bullets here over the last couple of years as well. And, uh, you know, everything that Cohen wanted to do, whether it be beef up analytics or spend on the roster or you know, go out and use his monetary advantage to make roster moves, like when they took on Chris Flexen's contract just to bring in Trevor Godd, who's a you know at best the league average you know early you know front end of the bullpen reliever when the Mets needed an arm. So everything that you thought about what a Cohen ownership would be with the kind of money he has has come true. The only thing that has not was the perfect front office. You know, Cohen has tried to put together the perfect roster. That didn't work, but he's tried to do that. Um, He's tried to put together the right front office over the last couple of years, tried to go after all the top executives. Nobody was either able to talk to him because they're under contract or didn't want to be part of the New York experience, whether it be because of Cohen and what they heard from the book Black Edge or because of New York or because of whatever, the expectations, the inability to just come in and, you know, break it down and rebuild or whatever it may be. Uh, Cohen has not been able to get the perfect front office. Now he's gotten the perfect front office. He hired David Stearns, which has probably been the worst kept secret in sports maybe ever. I mean, they've been talking about this guy for at least two years. There's not a single person that has come out negatively about this hire, uh, you know, regarding Stearns. He's a media darling. He checks all the boxes, grew up a Mets fan, Ivy league, analytically inclined young uh, you know he has that small market success that everybody loves that resume which makes him a media darling there's nobody in the world and especially at least in this baseball world that's going to criticize this hire and the story I mean think about the story that it's heading into it almost harkens back to when you watch Moneyball and Brad Pitt is meeting with John Henry at Fenway Park in the luxury boxes and John Henry slips that piece of paper while they're drinking coffee and says here I want to make you the highest paid general manager in all of professional sports Billy Bean turns it down and they go with Theo Epstein and you know how the story went it's almost like that's what happened here with Cohen as the report is that Stearns is gonna be making 10 million dollars a year now God bless him capitalism you know you got to go out there and earn every dollar you 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 can he's earned it he's gone out there and and been successful, but as far as this being a slam dunk hire, and I'm not in the camp, you know, I I read what Bill Madden said. You know, Bill Madden wrote an article less uh, complimentary of of Stearns, basically saying, hey, this is a guy that is analytically inclined, made some dubious trades on his uh, watch in Milwaukee. Hater trade is one, uh, you know, that came up not as much into the scouting and player development side of the, of the business. Uh, Doug Melvin was his predecessor who Stearns replaced in 2015, and there was a lot of assets left over that Stearns benefited from in Milwaukee that helped him get to those four playoff appearances during his tenure. And, uh, you know, Madden threw some cold water over at the Daily News on the hire. And I'm not in that camp. I think always Stearns, and who, what he represents, his age, his academic background, the fact that he's more of an analytics guy than a guy that grew up making his way through the scouting system, through you know going out there and finding talent like the old way, the old way that GMs used to come up the ranks, whether they were former players or somebody that really had scouting chops, player development chops. They weren't, you know, Ivy League educated. That's a new phenomenon in the last oh, I'd say fifteen years. So I'm not in that camp. You know, Any of the longtime writers of this town are going to fall into that, hey, dubious category when it comes to the hiring of someone of uh, David Stern's background. Uh, all I know is this. Love the resume. Love what he could bring. Love the fact that many think that the Mets signed the top free agent, the Shohei Otani of executives out there, You know, if that's what you want to call him. Can't argue with that. But Stearns, and I know he grew up here. I know he worked for this team as an intern in another lifetime. I'm sure he understands what he's getting into. At the very least, he's getting into it for the money. Um, I would hope, because he probably would have been paid elsewhere, maybe not $10 million a year, but he would have been paid handsom- handsomely elsewhere. Uh, him coming into the Mets, where they are now, and where he came into Milwaukee after the 2015 season, when he took over Doug Melvin, could not be polar opposite situations. Let's face it. Nobody heard of this guy. You didn't hear of this guy back in 2015. The only reason you're talking about him now is because the media has talked about him and they've connected the whole Mets connection and everybody loves small, small market success. Milwaukee is no man's land. Yeah. The green Bay Packers, everybody loves them and whatnot. But from a baseball perspective, Milwaukee is no man's land. It really is. No one cared when he took over. You're coming into a situation with a team that, although they're not an original team or a historic team like the Cubs, the Cardinals, the Yankees, the Red Sox, let's put it this way, even A-Rod, and I've spoken about this before, talked about it, the Mets may not be around as long as those teams, but they're a jewel franchise like one of those teams. And they've been befallen by inconsistency and bad luck and all sorts of different scenarios over the last nearly 40 years since they last won a World Series in 1986. I mean, you could take Mets history from 1986, the minute that last out and Marty Barrett struck out, till today, and write yourself a hell of a book, a book of many different things that you can talk about, whether it be bad management, bad luck, uh, wacky fortune, almost famous you know, type of thing, you know, nearly f- almost champions type of thing. Uh, you're coming into this situation— The expectations always were high. Steve Phillips has talked about this back in the day where the Mets didn't have the money like the Yankees, but they had the same expectations because they were across town. Well, now they have the money. They have enhanced expectations because of the money, because the owner, because the owner has come in and, and basically upset the apple cart by spending and spending in a way that nobody else has ever seen. You think the other 29 owners are happy? No, they're not. You think there aren't GMs? Uh, in other towns and cities, especially down south in Atlanta or in St. Louis or Milwaukee, you know, where Stearns came from. You know, I don't think that owner out in Milwaukee is enjoying the fact that his team's headed to the postseason and Cohen, despite his pocketbook, is not. Of course, nobody wants to see, see Steve Cohen win. So he's coming in and facing that. And, you know, there is a new world here. You know, Stearns is coming into a world where the Mets are one, of many, many entertainment options and they have to battle with that. Not just battling with the Yankees, not just battling with the fact that the NFL starts the first week of September and you can move on or that, you know, you can move on to the winter sports right after that or that, you know, the world is shrinking this, you know, it's not a a regional world as much anymore. It's a, it's a global world and, and New York City's a melting pot and there's people from different cultures and countries that are into different things. You know, you're faced with that because if you don't win and you're not success, successful, You know, people will move on pretty quick. And you need to look no further. You have heard me say that there are so many similarities between the plight of the Red Sox and the Mets. And I know not everybody agrees with that. But, you know, when Theo Epstein took over the Red Sox in 2004, uh, he was taking over a team that was in a little bit of better place than the Mets. The Mets had a 100-win season. The Red Sox probably should have gone to the World Series in 2003 if... You know, there was some dubious managerial moves and some bad luck and Aaron Boone and all that stuff. But leading up to 2003, the Red Sox were very similar. You know, you had a a solid GM in Dan Duquette who gets a lot of grief, but when they won that 2004 World Series, there was a number of players that he imported over his time on that roster. It wasn't completely Theo Epstein's roster. The Red Sox had, you know, so many fits and starts, so much bad luck. They'd go out, sign big free agents, wouldn't work teams that were, were misbuilt, either too much offense or not enough pitching or whatever it may be, but they were always in on, you know, the big names, and they were still the Red Sox, and the fans loved them, and they were, you know, it still was Fenway Park, and they'd still sell out, and all of New England would be behind them, but there was this, you know, anvil over their head. No no matter what happened, no matter how good things were, you always were expecting the other shoe to drop, and then look what happens in Game Six, uh, game 7, 2003, and then the following year, everybody knows what came here. You, there's so many similarities to where the Mets are. But even now, there's similarities to here with David Stearns as you could only you have to go back four or five years when Heim Bloom, who many of you at that time, when Brody Van Wagenen was hired, wanted the Mets to hire Hein Bloom. I was you know, not thinking of an agent or a former agent as the Mets GM, but I thought at that time... Because you weren't sure that the Wilpons were in selling uh, mode, that you needed someone who could sell players to come here and navigate the aging game and navigate the the limited finances, and I thought, hey, that's a creative, out of the box way of approaching the situation the Mets are in. Hein Bloom is just another smart guy from Tampa that's going to want to come in and you know knock this down, trade off DeGrom, trade off all the assets, and you know build it from the ground up. And at that time, it was pretty clear that the Mets were a good team with good bones who had a pitching staff that they needed to leverage. So I wasn't into that. And, you know, Bloom goes to Boston, and he was just fired. Went with the same kind of fanfare that you're hearing just five years later with David Stearns, coming from a small market team, Ivy League educated. No one talked about that. Now, the big difference is nobody talked about how high Bloom. Was you know lost out on four or five jobs before the Red Sox hired him, including the Mets, the Giants, the Phillies. There was a number of teams that did not hire him after he interviewed, which should have told you a little bit there. Uh, but he was a media darling, and look, five years later, it's not all his fault. Uh, he's out of a job, and you know, the bloom is off the rose. You know, no pun intended over there on that. And look, the Red Sox are not. Set back in the same manner that the Mets could be if this move doesn't work out. But, you know, Steve Cohen said during his press conference earlier this year that if you, you hire the wrong person in your front office, your wrong president of baseball operations, you could set the team back 10 years. Well, Steve Cohen better hope it's right because it doesn't matter after the introductory press conference that he was a Mets fan and he interned under Omar Manaya and that he's from the Upper East Side or Upper West Side. I don't know where. I can't remember exactly where. And um, you know his mom still lives here, and he loves the Mets and the transistor radio, listening to the games. You know, with the radio under his pillow. Whatever story is going to come out, and you'll hear it over and over and over again, because that's what you do at introductory uh, press conferences. There's never a bad one, because if there's a bad first press conference, it's it's only going to go downhill from there. Um, What he's coming into, you know, is is kind of similar. Look. Bloom had to trade Mookie Betts. That was more of an ownership uh, decision, but he blew that trade. And if you read a lot of the criticisms on the way out the door that the Boston media has about Bloom is that his tenure was boring. The Red Sox became this boring team without buzz, without pizzazz, that was not entertaining the fan base. They talk about how ticket sales were uh, opposing fan bases like Dodger fans coming east took over the stadium how tickets for the Yankees series were easy to come by for as little as a dollar. And they all pretty much say, you know, Heim Bloom's tenure was filled with this blah, blase, roster building, lack of star power, just kind of in the way that you'd build things in Tampa without the success. And it didn't work. And now you have a situation where the Red Sox are not necessarily this exciting, you know, oh, look, you know, the all of New England still loves them. But it's not the same feeling. There's not the same energy behind the the team. It couldn't be 180 degrees opposite of what used to be in 2003 and 2004. And forget about Yankees, Red Sox, just in general. I mean, does anybody really look at the Red Sox as this model franchise? Does everybody really look forward to, oh, you know, Mets went to Boston. All right, Red Sox. It's, you know, another team on the schedule. They're not looked at the same way. Now, that could change. All you have to do is go through a, a, you know, a little bit of a You know, they had won a World Series in the the year he came in. So it's not like the Red Sox are not short on success. I mean, they're not in the same position. They've got their titles under their belt. And if they need to reboot and be on a downswing for five, six, or seven years, I don't know if it'll be that long, but for a five-year period, they can afford that. It'll hurt. It'll set, you know, the fans' interest will move to other things in the market like the Patriots, like the Celtics, but they'll move over. And I see David Stearns in a similar situation here with the Mets However, he's taking over not necessarily having the privilege of a championship in 2018 or having four titles over the span of you know 15 years. Doesn't have that. This team hasn't won anything in almost 40 years. They've made the playoffs in back-to-back seasons only a couple of times. 2015 is a long faded memory. It's almost 10 years ago. So you have no equity from that magical run. And Everybody could forgive Cohen for shoehorning the front office. We know what he was faced with. I talked about it. He came in, had to build his front office, had to, you know, build his team at the same time. You really should have your front office, your planning team, and everything together and then build your team. We talked about this. We know what, you know, this guy was faced with over the last, you know, couple of years. And, And now he's got his guy. And his guy comes in, he's got a. Work with Billy Epler, which is an odd setup, and you heard it in the intro. Cohen trusts Epler. They have a personal relationship. A personal relationship. It's almost like that's his Isaiah Thomas. You know, Jim Dolan at Isaiah Thomas is Billy Epler becomes Steve Cohen's. Look, the first guy to take the job and embrace Cohen and teach him about the sport is, is always going to have that special place in, in, in this guy's heart. So you got that. So Stearns is inheriting this guy, which is interesting. Different roles and how they split that up. You know, we'll see how that works. Uh, They're going to have to try to contend in 2024. I know they say they're going to take a step back. I think they're doing a lot of that to manage fan expectation and media expectations and maybe sneak up on people a little bit, but they want to contend. That's not going to be easy. They're going to have to spend money. There's going to be competition for some of the big players on the market like Otani or Yamamoto. And, you know, Japan might play a huge role in this off season for, you know, teams looking to rebuild. Uh, You know, you have some of these young players, all of them, some of them are up like Mauricio and, and Beatty, some like Gilbert um, and Acuna are still to be developed. So you have a lot of guys competing for jobs that you just quite honestly don't know anything about. So you're going to be taking a leap of faith on some players. So there's going to be tons of uncertainty going in 2024, but you're going to be expected to win. You've got Pete Alonso and the Pete Alonso contract and what's going to go on there. And nobody knows what's going to happen there. And the fact that the Mets haven't signed them shouldn't be an indication of anything because – You know, that's how these things go. You know, players tend to like to take these down to where the leverage falls more in their favor and and going to free agency would be in Pete's favor because, you know, why not start fielding offers so that you don't shortchange yourself? And then you have the manager. You You have a manager that I think is a really good manager. I don't think this season's been his fault. There's been so many obstacles in front of him on the roster from a variety of ways. You know, once you get bad pitching... Every manager looks bad when you get pitchers that, through a big chunk of the first half, could barely go five innings. And then they rip the team down. So, what do you expect? The fact that they're not heading for 100 losses after the way they rip this team down tells you that they're still competing. You know, they're a little short in some areas, but they're still competing. I give the manager a ton of credit. Uh, and quite honestly, when I talk about the manager with Stearns coming in, it is a big decision because the last thing you want to do is get rid of one of the last remaining experienced managers that could bring a lot to the table, detail orientated, has worked with younger teams before. I know he gets knocked about young players, but, you know, in Baltimore, he had some young players come up with that team when it became successful. Same thing with the Yankees as they were coming into their own. um, And the Diamondbacks were a team that was, you know, built from scratch. I know there was a ton of veterans on that team and, and what have you. But, you know, he built that team from scratch. You know, these are things on his resume that were attractive to the Mets, and they shouldn't be discounted. And how he took, you know, these chaotic spring, you know, spring training going into 2022 and put a 100-win te- team together from that shouldn't be forgotten. And he's got another year in his contract. And if I'm Stearns, I come in and I'm like, why would I upset the apple cart from the minute? Let me see what I got here. Let me see if I have something here. Because unless you're going to tell me that they have the next manager that's going to be here 10 years, they're Ron Gardenhire, they're Davey Johnson, they're Tito Francona, you know, whatever, if that person's out there, then I'm not interested because I'm not interested in taking a chance, getting rid of Buck Showalter unless he wants to leave or retire, you know, taking a chance on some no-name, whether it's a, a former player or someone from the front office or someone who's, you know, analytically inclined or from driveline or something, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in doing another. Let's see this guy for two years. Oh, it doesn't work out. Let's go to the next one, and have a revolving door because you're going to go under the guys that the manager doesn't matter. The manager matters, you know. And you have one of the last remaining old school managers uh, in your in under contract. And I think you at least give him a year and see what's going on, and then evaluate the organization. You know, Buck may not want to manage past next year anyway. And what a great way to transition and hand off where you can hand off a team that's in a better place than where it was when he came on. So there is a ton of stuff in front of David Stearns, and the honeymoon is not going to last long. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's going to last us at all. I mean, maybe you'll have that honeymoon, that press conference on October 2nd, the 3rd, whatever day he's officially announced as a hire, and the media talks to him. Then after that, it's right to work. Fortunately he's had Billy Epler get a jump start and they've been working on things. And Epler, as we talked about on last week's show, has done a nice job. And I don't think the cupboard's bare. You know, are the Mets one or two players away? No, from being a division champion, no. But they've they don't have the same certainty, in my opinion, that you saw when Brody Van Wagenen took over in twenty nineteen when they had the pitchers, when you knew what the real areas of need for the current roster was you knew they needed to build up the farm system that's been an ongoing thing but you knew what the big league roster you know needed here there's so many question marks on this roster you still really don't know what you have in every rookie except for alvarez seems to be the only one that's established himself 100% you've got to figure out alonzo um, you have to figure out if you know what McNeil is you know cuz this he's starting to profile as a super utility guy expensive one but a super utility guy you know you have Lindor you know what you have there in Nimo, and stuff like that but what other young offensive players can you count on do you have something in DJ Stewart uh, Gilbert in the minor leagues is tearing it up in Binghamton is he a guy that can make the opening day roster in 2024 Acuna uh, Mauricio Beatty you know on and on you have so many questions here so it's not like you just go out and say well like if I sign this free agent sign that free agent and even from the pitching side you really have to be careful about what you sign to build up the bull, the, the starting rotation because you don't want to give up draft picks that you know anybody that's attached to a qualifying offer. And then the bullpen, you know, the Mets haven't built a good bullpen in almost twenty years, so it's it's taken some time. And there's a lot out there, and you're expected to continue to build the infrastructure of the team, continue to build a farm system, and then compete and contend in 2024. That's a lot to ask. There is no honeymoon and if this guy comes in and this is not going to happen and and thinks he's going to come in and do one of these, you know, two or three years and we'll, you know, our clock starts and we're scheduled to be a contender in 2027, nobody wants to hear that. You know, maybe they'll they'll buy into that BS the media for about a year, but they're going to want to see results. And honestly, the fans don't want that. The fans are going to expect a winning team on the field, and then you'll have that small percentage of the fan base That worries about the farm. They always worry about the farm system. They they really don't. There's a percentage of the fan base that doesn't care about the big league club. They just care about the farm system because that's the hope of the future and the promise of the future. And you never could be disappointed. So that's why they dive into that because they can't handle the 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 stress of failure and losing. So the farm system never. It's always about speculation, the future. So you can always dream. Um, you know, they'll expect that the general fan, but the general fan is going to want to win. And they're going to expect a lot. And this guy's going to come with a lot of hype. He's making a lot of money. Uh, he's got a, you know, he's got everything in front of him. The richest owner in the sport. Uh, it seems like he's got a, a burgeoning farm system with some really interesting arms, some interesting positional players, some guys already on the big league roster. He's got a roster that has some interesting stuff. Is not complete, but has so many questions. And you're not going to have the answers for these questions. Maybe even coming out of spring training in Port St. Lucie next year. Truly, next season is going to be one of the more fascinating seasons in Mets history because, one, we don't know what it really is. Is it a transition rebuild year or is it a, you know, we really want to dial back expectations, but we're looking to be a contender in the sense where we want to make it to the tournament. And you just have so many young new players that don't have a resume. I mean, yeah, you have McNeil and Nemo and Lindor, And maybe you want to throw, to a certain degree, Alvarez in there. And then you have your Senga and your Quintana in the rotation and a couple of relievers. But there are so many guys on this roster that you have no idea what to expect out of them. Mauricio and Gilbert and Akuna and Beatty, uh, DJ Stewart, uh, on and on and on. So Stearns is coming into a very challenging situation. And I hope, you know, we've been talking about the Mets mirroring the Red Sox. Uh, I hope they mirror the Red Sox and how Theo Epstein came in and took them to the promised land, and not mirror Heim Bloom and what happened to Heim Bloom over in Boston. Because you know it could easily go both ways here, guys. There's no guarantees. The Mets are in a very, very, very tricky spot. Very tricky spot. And money can't solve everything. Look, their money's not going to help them this off season because honestly. I wouldn't overpay for Blake Snell or Aaron Nola, and you don't know if you could outbid everybody for every Japanese player. I mean, you know Yamamoto might be their top pick. They're gonna have competition. You know, this this, the secret's out. You know, only a few teams are in on Senga. I think many more are gonna be in on Yamamoto, including the Yankees. So it'll be a real test to can Cohen and and Stearns and Epler sell somebody, and can they still sell? You know, if they want an Otani. Is there still a a sell story with Cohen, even with Stearns on board, after the failures of Scherzer and Verlander and how badly this season went? Can you still sell that this is a functional organization headed into the right direction with a sustainable winning infrastructure? A lot of questions. Stearns is going to have to answer those. And that's the bigger thing. Stearns is going to be in front of the media. Not so much Epler, unless Epler's going to be the media guy. I don't think Epler's a great media guy. Stearns is the guy they're going to want to talk to, not Epler. They're going to want Epler doing his inside baseball lingo with some assistant GM or GM uh, somewhere. They want to hear from the Harvard kid. They want to hear from the executive star, the darling. He'll be the darling of the media. He will, but that'll change real quick if things go sour real quick. So... Anyway, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go into the vault. Bartolo Colon was at Citi Field today, back in 2020, in the spring of 2020, when the pandemic was raging. I had a chance to talk to Michael Stahl, author of the book that he uh, collaborated with, with Bartolo Colon called Big Sexy. Michael talked about, you know, what he learned about Bartolo Colon, and we reminisced about some memories, so... Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll go into the vault and we'll look back to an old interview I conducted with Michael Stahl, author of the book, Big Sexy. You're listening to Talking Mets Podcast. We're back with more right after this. Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with UFI. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey, Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today Alright, we're back. So I want to cue this up real quick. The book is uh, Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words. Michael Stahl is the author. I had the privilege of speaking to him back in May of 2020. Uh, No baseball, pandemic raging. We didn't know when baseball would be back. So one of the things I did is, you know, had some alumni reports and was looking for some cool Mets content in this book, you know, which I had no idea there was actually going to be a book. About Bartolo clone out, and I stumbled across it, reached out to Michael, we had a great conversation. So you'll hear that conversation from May of twenty twenty between Michael Stahl, author of the book Big Sexy, and me.
4: He's just keeping the ball away from Board. The whole game he wants to get it. There ball
1: behind the back slip and he got him. Oh! It's so easy for Cologne right now that he's able to put some mustard on it. First hit of the year. Oh. He drives one. Deep left field. That goes up to back near the wall. It's out of here. <laughs> Bartolo has done it. The impossible has happened. The team vacates the dugout. As Bartolo takes the long trot, his first career home run. And there will be nobody in the dugout to greet him. (laughs) This is one of the great moments in the history of baseball. Bartolo Colon has gone deep. I
4: want to say that was one of the longest home run trots I've ever seen, but I think that's how fast he runs. (laughs)
5: Um, joined by Michael Stahl. Uh, you guys uh, may have seen the book. It just came out about a week or so ago. Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in His Own Words. Former Met, former Indian, uh, beloved Met, actually, even though he has a short period of time, Bartolo Colon. You can check out Michael at his website, com, and at Michael R. Stahl. And Michael, welcome to the program. Now, Memorial Day just a week away, and there won't be any baseball, and we don't know if there'll be any baseball, but... Uh, I think if you're a Mets fan or or baseball fan, this book that uh, you came out with will at least scratch the itch a little bit. Real interesting stuff on a character, I have to admit, I did not expect a book to come out on. So pretty interesting how you're able to get this one put
6: through. Uh, Yeah, you know, Bartolo's, you know, he's a beloved person, uh, especially in the Mets community, but really, honestly, throughout Major League Baseball. Uh, I got to be in contact with some representatives from several major league franchises. And I promise you, this is not an exaggeration. Every time I would reach out to somebody in one of these franchises, they would say, oh, Bartolo, he's one of my favorite people that you know we've ever worked with, we've ever had here uh, on the team. Um, beloved throughout the game, um, but a character. But I think also this book will really kind of show you um, that he's a very layered person. Um, I think kind of, you know, people saw this just sort of, you know, kind of shy, humble, you know, and yet sort of fun-loving guy, but there's many layers uh, to the to the Bartolo Colon, uh, the man, and his backstory is just one of incredible inspiration, um, and people will really get to know him, you know, very intimately, and I think get to relive... You know, some fantastic uh, baseball moments uh, from the past, you know, 25 years, basically.
5: How did you come about? Because I wouldn't have thought of him wanting to write a book. I mean, he's kind of still playing, so he's not really retired, but I think his career is coming to an end. Uh, Obviously, the public perception, and he talks about it in the book. He speaks Spanish usually publicly because he's a lot more comfortable with that. So maybe you don't get the total feel of who he is. But how did you come about wanting to write the book? Get in touch with him? Because this is. Just just came out of the blue when I saw it. I'm like, wow, Bartolo Colon, with a book. That's interesting.
6: It came out of the blue for me, too. Um, so what happened was uh, Abrams Books, which uh, published the book, uh, a, an editor there, and the word editor now is kind of multifaceted. Uh, he's more of like a project manager, I guess you, you could say. Um, but uh, the, the editor there named uh, Garrett McGrath is a friend and colleague of mine. Uh, he actually was the one that came up with the idea in about August or September of 2018. Um, So I think he just, you know, he's a, he follows baseball. He's a big baseball fan. Uh, When we first met, that was actually kind of something we bonded over our our, our respective love for baseball, even though he's a Yankees fan uh, and I'm a Mets (laughs) fan, but, um, but he uh, he's, he's a great guy and, and he came up with the idea for the book and uh, I think, you know, just knowing Bartolo, again, as this kind of character, this interesting guy, he had a feeling that at that point that Bartolo's career was was coming to an end, I think pretty much everybody did, uh, and he approached Bartolo with the idea for the book, and again, that was in about September 2018, um, everyone had kind of signed off on it, and then Bartolo... I think that might have sort of (laughs) made it a little real for him, you know, retirement. So ironically, I think even while we were going through the process of writing this book, he was sort of wavering a little bit on whether or not to retire. I think he was, I I really don't know this for sure, but I think at some points he was kind of, you know, settled and, and committed on retiring, but then just kind of wavered. And, you know, it was, it was too difficult for him to give it up. And then, yeah, you know, even this year, we had the book on the way, and he signed with that team in, in the Mexican League, uh, but COVID-19 uh, canceled that season uh, indefinitely, so, you know, unfortunately, I think this might, uh, you know, be a, I don't know if it's I pre- I don't know if it's a premature end to his career. I mean, it might be in his mind, but uh, COVID might have actually sort of ended his career prematurely. I think he wanted to give it one last go he was trying to even in, in the 2019 season and a couple of teams had contact with him. I believe the Tigers did. I think I heard at some point the Mets had contacted him as well or looked into it, but they, I think they signed Irvin Santana instead. Um, so he's been trying to come back, um, but obviously, uh, you know, his his age is, he's getting up there in age. And uh, and also again, the COVID-19 crisis didn't, didn't really help things for him.
5: Michael Stahl, author of the book Big Sexy Bartolo Colon, in his own words, a really good and what they call now the pandemic books that you want to read, getting your baseball itch. And you. you mentioned that that everybody, um, you know, had something, you know, when you brought up Bartolo. Oh, wow, let me have a great story. And that's what's fun about this book. So if you buy it, you have a Manny, Manny Ramirez tells a story. Omar Vizquel. Uh, Albert Pujols. These are not easy. Like, Ramirez. That's not an easy guy. If I called Manny Ramirez and said, "Hey, come on a podcast," he's probably going to say no. Um, but it seems like, like you said, and I'm wondering. You know, I always ask an author what What was your biggest learning or surprise when you took on this project? Was it the fact, like you said earlier, how many people wanted to engage you in conversation about Bartolo, um, and not just, I'm sure, Latino players? I mean, uh, he seemed to transcend in those locker rooms through different clicks and whatnot was that your biggest learning with other things going in which you as you said as a Mets fan thought you knew about Bartolo and then came out and said wow never expected that
6: I think uh, this might sound this might sound almost like insulting and I don't mean it that in this way at all uh, towards him not at all I I, I don't really have a, a bad thing to say about him but I think the thing that I wouldn't say maybe surprised. that might not be the best way of putting it but it just it just was sort of it, it just really piqued my interest about him was just how uh, smart and observant and conscientious he is. So you know, I think Mets fans again, and then really just baseball fans, because he's always done these interviews in Spanish and things like that. You know, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect. As much as Met, as as fans feel like we know Bartolo, like there is still like this like sort of little disconnect, with, you know, with him. And getting to know him a little bit and you know, really trying to sort of understand what he's trying to get across. I came to realize that he's very smart in his own way and very observant and conscientious of the way people think about him. So for example, uh, in the book, you know, of course he tells the story about the home run, right? And he was telling me that as he rounded first base, as he approached first base, the Padres first baseman, Will Myers, had his arms crossed and gave him a look like, I can't believe you just hit a home run. And <laughs> I remember when, when we were talking about that, Bartolo said to his interpreter, he said, now I want to stress this, that he didn't say that to me. I don't know what he was thinking, but it looked to me like he was surprised that, that he looked at me like, I, I couldn't believe you just hit a home run. So, You know, that right there was just, like, sort of an example of how sensitive he is, you know, and how he didn't want to, you know, show anybody else up. You know, again, with that home run, he tells the story in the book about um, seeing James Shields for the first time after the home run about uh, a year and a half later when he was in camp with the Rangers. Um, And James Shields says to him, hey, remember when you hit that home run off me? And even in that personal one-on-one exchange, Bartolo didn't want to, like, show the guy up. And he goes, no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And then James Shields laughs at him. You know, so I think that was one thing. Again, surprised is not the right word. It just was sort of like, oh, this is something I really didn't get to know about him. And uh, and and again, he's just, he's just, he's a sharp guy. He's maybe smart isn't the right word in this context. But he's a sharp guy. You know, he's not this like sort of like happy-go-lucky, flippant, you know, uh, person. Uh, Who is unaffected by things. He's very sensitive and very affected by his surroundings and conscientious of other people's feelings. And I think that's something that people who read the book will, will, will learn as well.
5: You know, you brought up the hitting, and and sometimes I – because recently that's been what a lot of people talk about, the home run. And there's so much more, and you'll see in this book, there's so much more to Cologne. I mean, there's – but we'll get to it in a minute. Two – really, two types of careers, two different types of pitchers, if you look at it. But what I found interesting is that when he came to the National League for the first time – well, he was with Montreal uh, briefly. But when he came back with the Mets, uh, he, he turned hitting into this, like, routine. I mean, with the bigger hat, the hat flying off. Uh, yeah. He wanted to have fun with it. And, and I was surprised because you just said he's sensitive and he's a professional. And no matter mm-hmm. who you are, pitcher, you know, 25th man on the roster, nobody wants to be made of a joke of on a professional baseball field. But he turned a weakness into fun. And from what I understand and I've right. heard, and I can't remember who told me this, he's not all that awful in batting practice. So it wasn't surprising. And I don't remember who said this. It might have been a current Met foreman who said that they were not totally surprised because he's not that bad of a hitter. But he turned it kind of into his own little sideshow, maybe to have fun and deflect. But I found that interesting about how he talked about his hitting in that way, in a way that you would not have expected a professional hitter to talk about themselves.
6: Yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, well, you know, one thing that I thought about as you were, as you were speaking was in, in Gary Cohen's famous home run call, right? He says you knew if he ever got, you know, hit one the right way, made contact the right way, he was strong enough to do it. And I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, Bartolo growing up, of course, you know, he hit all the time and and he said that he was, you know, a very good hitter. And I think that that's probably true for probably any major league pitcher. You know, they grow up, they're not pitching all the time. You're not even really supposed to start really throwing until you're 13. So, you know, if you're playing baseball starting at age four or five years old, that's still a lot of hitting. And then even when you're pitching into, you know, your high school and college years, you're still going and hitting. So, you know these guys still you know like to hit, but boy, what a what a you know what a statement that makes about the quality of major league pitches, right? That even even though these pitchers you know it takes so much practice um, to to be able to step into a box against major league pitchers. Um, but Bartolo took it very seriously. Um, as soon as he signed with the Mets, he was already talking with uh, you know one of his representatives, uh, Cesar. Uh, he was saying, you know, my goal is to to hit a home run. You know, uh, and and they had actually sort of, uh, I'm not sure if this made it into the book, but they had actually sort of made a bet uh, that in 2016 that he would hit a home run. He didn't, or not in 20, or his first year with the Mets. Sorry, they had made a bet before 2014 that he would hit a home run. Now, actually, Bartolo lost that bet, but then in 2016 he hits he hits the famous home run. So he took it very seriously, and he says in the book that by 2016 he was feeling a lot more comfortable in the box. Um, and that, you know, speaks to his dedication and how seriously he took his craft. But like I said a few minutes ago, he, here's this like very layered guy, uh, very interesting, unique person who's has a dynamic personality, even though he was taking, you know, hitting very seriously and, and, and wanting to do, you know, well for his team when he could, um, you know, he also took the time, had the frame of mind to, you know, put on a bigger batting helmet so that the batting helmet would flip would fly off, and the fans would laugh, so you know it, it, that says everything to about him right there just how kind of you know he 's a walking anomaly i mean you and and everything about him is uh, it comes back to that right like you think about his body and yet he shows off his athleticism that that day down in miami when he when he flips the ball back behind his uh, behind his back right so you wouldn't expect that from. You know, those cat-like reflexes (laughs) from a guy of his body type. Um, But that's that's him as a whole person. He's just like this dynamic walking anomaly.
5: I was a little surprised, and and throughout the book, you'll ask him his favorite, you know, guy he's hardest to hit, favorite stadium on the road, favorite stadium, home stadium. And I was surprised at how fond he was of his Mets years. Now, they were three years. He went to the World Series, was a big part of those teams, pitched very well. Some of his seasons with the Mets, if you start looking at some advanced analytics, are right up there, better than his Cy Young season that he had with Anaheim. But he holds mm-hmm. his Mets years very fond. And again, it's more than yes. that home run. To just talk about the home run is disrespectful, in my opinion. It's a fun moment. But uh, talk about that, because I, I was a little surprised at how fond he was of his Mets years. I didn't expect that for a guy that you know played with them at the end of his career, didn't come up with them, and was not the star of that staff by any stretch of the imagination.
6: You know, I was a little surprised about that, too. And um, I just had one other quick thought, if you don't mind me sharing. Um, when I spoke to him about his time in Montreal, you know, for me as a huge baseball fan, I've been a huge baseball fan my whole life. You know, I remember when he went to Montreal, I was like, man, this is like a huge deal. Like, he might literally save the franchise. And when I spoke to him about that, he he was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just, I, I was in a groove and I, and I just kind of was able to keep my groove going. I wasn't thinking about, you know, if the team could stay in the, in the city. And I was just kind of like, wow. Like I, I just would have thought that he would have felt, you know, maybe a little more pressure on him, but he didn't. Um, but, um, but yeah, the, the Mets time and then the sort of the opposite was true with the Mets uh, in that, you know, he spent uh, three years there, but, you know, it seems like they were, you know, about maybe the three, you know, most favorite years of his career. It's, it, it comes off that way. He doesn't quite say put it that way, but, um, he really enjoyed himself. And, um, you know, I am a, I am a Mets fan. And, uh, I don't, I don't, but I really don't think that that is what bled into the text at all when, it, when I put it together. Um, any kind of favoritism. I think that he just, he bought a house in New Jersey. Um, he, he still lives there part time. And as he says in the book, the Mets, it really was the team that felt most like home for him. And, uh, you know, he stayed with them for a third year um, because – and he took less money because he just felt so comfortable uh, with that franchise. Um, and uh, what, so many great moments for him. I mean, not, not just the home run, right, but he also pitched in his one World Series uh, with the Mets. He pitched in the All-Star game. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had the Jose Fernandez game with the Mets. Plus, like I said, the 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 behind-the-back throw, which was a different game, but also in Miami. So just as it turns out, just just a a ton of great moments for him, and the Mets fans embraced him, I think, more so than any other fan base uh, of all the teams that he was with. One more thing I'll point out, too, is I think, you know, something else that might have been a factor here is, and Omar Vizquel kind of talks about it in his excerpt, uh, about how, you know, later in his career with the Mets and and the Rangers, and, you know, he sort of seemed to open up a little bit and enjoy himself more. When he was with Cleveland, he was so young and so shy, and I wonder if maybe just as Bartolo aged a little bit, he kind of, you know, felt a little more comfortable, felt like he could come out of his shell a little bit. So then that creates this energy where the Mets fans can embrace him and Bartolo embraces them even more, and it creates this real, like, cycle of positive energy, if, if that makes sense.
5: I think people forget, he was very big for them in that World Series run. He didn't start any games, but that was a thin bullpen. It was a bullpen that was very Mm -hmm. dicey outside of Familia. And he was able to, when starters got kicked out of the game early, uh, fifth, sixth inning, knocked out, you know, that bridge. You know, I know John Neese was the lefty, but instead of them having to go out and get an arm, he was able to really pitch well. And uh, for the most part, uh, outside of the Chase Utley game, and we know what happened there when he came in, he almost got them out of that inning. He really didn't give up anything, and Guy was starting all year, been a starter his whole career, now you're being asked to go to the bullpen, warm up, come in, up, down, yep. whatever, and he did it, and he did it without complaining, and that's big, and then he comes back for less money the next year, uh, just sh- shows you a lot about who he was, You know, looking back, what a, a unique team that was, and he was a big part of that bridge to Familia, uh, which they badly needed during that postseason.
6: Uh, Terry Collins says in the book uh, I got to speak to Terry Collins over the phone and and he contributed a story and he says the definition of a professional, he's like Bartolo is right there, you know Um, and yeah, he does discuss in the book, Bartolo, that is about how uncomfortable he was coming out of the bullpen but he knew that that was what the team needed so he was going to do it and um, you know, he had a couple of tough luck performances, he gave up a few runs but you know, I think in the World Series I want to say I think he came in with runners-on. I mean, this is something that this guy has just, like, literally almost never done in his entire, forget just professional career, probably in his entire, like, life. You know what I mean? Like when he was starting to pitch in the Dominican Republic at age, you know, 14, you know, I don't think that the way they organized games there, he was, you know, coming in (laughs) out of a bullpen and, you know, with runners-on in, like, an eighth-inning situation or whatever it was. Uh, or extra innings, I think, was what happened in the World Series. Um, and then, yeah, like you mentioned, the, the Chase Utley play. I mean, he should have gotten out of that inning. Um, so he had a little bit of tough luck in the in the playoffs, but overall he pitched, he pitched pretty well for them and in a spot where he was not comfortable. And I think that says a lot about him as a character and as a teammate. And, uh, again, I go back to, you know, what Terry Collins said about him. Uh, he tells that great story about one of his early starts in Anaheim where Bartolo just didn't have it, and he gave up like back to back to back home runs, I think in like the first inning. And you know what he did? He took He took his licks, and he he stayed in the game until the fifth inning because the bullpen was was tired. So you know his ERA ballooned up to like six or something like that. But you know he didn't care. He he knew it was best for the team, and, and he and he wanted to stay in the game. He told Terry after the first inning, he goes, "I'm going to get you into the seventh. And he wound up going five, but still, like, that's his, that was his attitude, and that was, you know, a real um, testament to him.
5: And what's interesting also when you go to his match years is that here's a guy in the league two decades plus, and Dan Worthen is one of his favorite pitching coaches. They had a unique relationship, one that for both mm-hmm. of them I was surprised, you know, with their pregame or uh, pregame routine. Uh, that's, uh, it says a lot. I mean, Worthen uh, was kind of a – bit of a controversial figure, you know, some myself included thought he didn't do a great job with younger pitchers, but certainly veterans who knew what they were doing, needed someone just to kind of correct. Uh, he seemed to be a good guy for them. And it seems like Bartolo fell into that. And that's a high praise for a pitching coach for a guy like this 20 plus years in the big leagues, picks him out of all the pitching coaches that you could have, you know, minor leagues, big leagues, you know, winter ball, whatever. That's the guy he picked. Very interesting.
6: Yeah, you know, when when I was doing those like so what I did was that all those asides was actually if I may take credit they they were my idea to just kind of ask him like, hey, what's your favorite uniform? What's your favorite stadium? Uh you know, I just kinda of did this like, you know, uh you know sort of like quick uh you know, almost like word association type thing. And when I asked him who's his favorite manager and when I asked him who his favorite Pitching coaches. Uh, he was a little uncomfortable giving the answers that he gave. He said Bob Garen for his uh, for manager, and he said Dan Warthen for pitching coach. And he and again his sensitivity here's his sensitivity on display. He said, you know, listen, all my managers were different. They all taught me something something unique, and he basically said the same thing for um, for the pitching coach, but but I I put him on the spot. (laughs) I forced him to give uh, single answers, and and for pitching coach, he said Dan Worthen. Um, But I think, I wonder if with Dan Worthen it had as much to do just with their personalities meshing than anything else, you know? Um, uh, You know, so the routine that you hinted at was before every start uh, when he was with the Mets, he would play hide-and-go-seek with Dan Worthen. Um, And that became you know, part of his routine uh, and he would come out of the uh, locker room and I guess just, you know, you do this thing 162 times a year, right? There's a rhythm to it, you know, when you get to the stadium, when you put your, you know, jersey on, whatever. So I guess Warden must've just sort of known about when Bartolo would be ready for him and, and he would just go hide and Bartolo just kind of sort of knew intuitively, like when to go look for him. Um, And you know, Warthen tells stories about you know jumping out of a closet to scare them and like making them laugh and all this kind of stuff. And they did that so many times. And then when Dan Warthen was his pitching coach in Texas, they started doing it again in Texas. So it was just such a great, uh, such a great story. And by the way, yeah, Warthen, uh, when I spoke to when I spoke to Warthen a couple times on the phone, really, really nice guy. By the way, just just wanted to make sure I said that.
5: Yeah, I've met Dan Warthen spring training. Definitely nice guy. Michael Stoll at Michael R Stoll on Twitter, MichaelStollWrites dot com. Uh, is the website big sexy Bartolo clone in his own words? And look, Mets fan, City Field is his favorite field. I don't know if did you have to put him on the spot with that one, or he was comfortable saying that you can't offend a stadium at this point, right? You know, was he able to comfortably <laughs> say he likes Field?
6: Yeah, that one he was. He he kind he said pretty much uh, with, without like uh, without a doubt. He said it directly.
5: Uh, when I look at Cologne's career, I see two <laughs> careers, and then I see the the, the beginning, the end the middle where there's a lot of uh, adversity health-wise health in yeah. the middle. Uh, hard thrower, maybe lacked the command and control at the beginning of his career, but a real stud. Uh, definitely a Hall of Fame track. Back end of his career, I think you, you mentioned the Terry Collins story, real professional, not bad numbers, definitely could pitch at a big game and keep in the game and maybe, maybe even dominate, but because he's going to have one stinker out of every five, his numbers are not going to look all that great. For every yeah. one of those... Uh, dominant performances there'll be maybe, or two dominant performances, he goes out to Anaheim and he gives up a ton of runs and the numbers get skewed. So I look at it at two different careers, and I don't know if you took that away. You know, you have the dominant or the young Bartolo Colon, but he knew how to pitch better late in his career. And I think the bridge is those three or four or five years when he was having the shoulder trouble, the elbow trouble, very serious trouble with his shoulder, has the cell therapy, which was controversial more so then, and I think, kind of went away from what it sounds like in the, in the book, but two different pictures. And I don't know if you took that away way different pictures in a lot of senses, uh, almost two different careers.
6: Yeah. And by the way, too, you know, at that whole time when his elbow and shoulder, uh, was giving him trouble, he also went through an incredible personal tragedy, uh, which, you know, I'm not going to get, get into, um, just because I kind of want to, you know, you know, get people to, to read the book, you know. But um, but uh, that is something, that period in his life just before he goes to the Yankees when he's out of baseball, uh, yeah, it was not only because of physical issues. He was going through some big family turmoil, uh, big family tragedy occurred. And um, that was also a big reason why he was out of baseball for, for a year. And people, I like, don't think, know that. Um, and I've seen some some articles online where they kind of discuss, you know, that that year where he was away from baseball and they're kind of like, uh, you know, he uh, he had to go and do this controversial surgery and that that was the only reason he was able to come back. He was doing the steroids or whatever. Um, I think his personal tragedy had a much bigger impact on his decision to stay away from the game than than anything. So that's something that people were not aware of and and they'll learn about. But um, his career is an incredible one. I mean, uh, is there anyone else, you know, that's ever been like that? Um, Maybe a small handful. Um, But uh, it it was interesting. I mean, I guess that's just not how we we evolve, right, as we age. You know, if only he had the sort of intellectual tools that he did as a 40-year-old. Uh, You know, if he could have had those at 25, you know, who knows what he could have been. I mean, he could have been, uh, you know, he could have been Pedro maybe, I don't know. Um, But uh, I definitely think what you just highlighted about those sort of two different careers is part of the reason behind um, Abrams wanting to do the book in the first place, because it's just a fascinating uh, career track.
5: And before I let you go and wrap up uh, the hall of fame, he mentions it. he talks a little bit about it in the book. Uh, most wins for a Dominican pitcher, if he gets a chance. uh, And and it sounds like, you know, COVID might put an end to it, but maybe, who knows? I mean, he's in his late 40s now, mid to late 40s. You know, he needs about 50 innings to get the most innings for a Dominican pitcher. His Hall of Fame case, when I first saw it brought up in the book, I'm like, nah, that's that's crazy, you know. But then I look at the comps on Baseball Reference, guys like Jack Morris Mm -hmm. and Jim Bunning. Yeah. Hall of Famers, you know, CC Sabathia, who should be a Hall of Famer. And I look at the wins, 247. I know people don't really look at that all that much. The peripherals aren't bad overall, but they're they're not tremendous, the, the advanced numbers. It's a shame he lost those three or four years, because I think the case would be much different if he has, uh, you know, averages maybe oh, you sure. know, 12 wins. I think we're having a much different conversation. With that said, it's not a terrible terrible case i think it's a veterans committee case down the line but it's not Mm -hmm. a terrible case and uh I'm, i'm wondering your thoughts i mean you know you're kind of my generation and and i'm not a total you know advanced guy but i take a lot of this now as we've learned over the last decade plus into account you know you can make an argument guys like jim bunning don't belong in the hall of fame when you look back at how you know they voted then and what we look at now but you have precedent for guys similar to cologne similar careers Similar numbers in the Hall of Fame, so it's not all that crazy. Bartolo Colon, a Hall of Famer.
6: Yeah, I think his his Hall of Fame resume is an interesting one. I don't think he quite measures up, like you mentioned, Jack Morris. But you know, if you had the um, if you had that extra year, at least um, or, or or two or three, really, um, I think you're looking at him more like a Mike Messina, right, in terms of the number of wins. Uh, and things like that, and maybe even better than Mike Messina because Messina uh, never won a Cy Young, uh, and Cologne did. So, I think that he's close. Uh, I think that, you know, the way he the way he talks about the numbers, and the fact that the numbers don't tell the whole story is is interesting. So, for example his first year in Anaheim, his ERA, if I recall correctly, was 5.01, right? But he won 18 games. And I think you would heard some of this with Jack Morris as well, that Morris's ERA is what, like 3.87, something like that, right?
5: Mm-hmm. Sure, um, about league
6: average. And, right. And, you know, I think Morris said the same thing, and Bartolo will, I think, say something similar is that, you know, when he was on Anaheim, Bartolo, that is, you know, he had a pretty good offensive team. So if he's, you know, by the second or third inning, if he's staked to a 5 nothing lead, he's just, you know, he's just launching balls right into the strike zone. He's not going to walk anybody, right? So maybe he finishes the game, he goes, you know, six innings, and he gives up three runs, you know, but he gets the win. His team wins, say, 6-3, right, 7-3. Um but, you know, if it was a one nothing game, maybe he would have, you know, maybe sacrificed a couple walks, struck some guys out. He was pitching to contact. And when he pitched to contact, there's a risk that, you know, guys are going to, you know, launch it out of the park. And that's what happened that one year. He gave up the most home runs of his career. And it was right after he had signed that contract and people were saying, like, oh, the pressure's getting to him and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, he won. <laughs> he did what he took to take to help his team win. And he... And he did win. He won eighteen games that year. So even though his ERA was over five, he didn't view that as like a bad year, you know. Um, so his ERA, his career ERA is, or ERA is something like four point oh six or four point oh eight, something like that. So, you know, that's a little high and he he says in the book he knows that his steroid suspension hurts him as well. Um but it's it is interesting when you think of a guy like him, how how do you define a Hall of Famer, right? Do you define it by dominance? Do you define it by longevity? Uh, Perhaps, you know, for him to even just have been in the major leagues as long as he was is a testament to that. And you could argue that that makes him a Hall of Famer in in that way. But also, what did the guy do to get his team to win, to get his team into the playoffs and, in the Mets case, you know, to the World Series? He did a lot. He did a lot. And then – and that – speaks to none of the intangible things in terms of, you know, sort of being a mentor to young Hispanic players, uh, particularly Hispanic players, like when he was with the Mets. Uh, Terry Collins talks a lot about that, and and Dan Worthen as well. So um, it it just depends on what side of the fence, you know, you fall on in terms of how you view a Hall of Famer. But I definitely think he has, at, at worst, an interesting case. And I agree with what you said. I think a veterans committee... Um debate uh, is is probably in the cards for him at at the very least
5: if yeah I know it's just a guess uh yeah. forty eight years old if let's say baseball doesn't come back this year comes back normal ish you know normal season next year. you know a little bit about him now. would you put it past him, giving it a shot, coming into camp as a non roster invitee if he could get that kind of job it's gonna get very difficult at his age with the way the game is going. Would you put it past them getting those 50 innings, getting a chance, even if it was a bad team, knowing what you know, giving this a shot at 48 years old? Think about that, 48 years old. So what get, we'll leave on that.
6: Yeah, I mean, he says in the book, here was another interesting remark you know, he, that he said that, that stood out to me. Um, he said, you know, it makes sense that the younger prospects would get the chance first, right? You know, give them the chance, you know, from a team franchise perspective, give them the chance to see what they got um, before he would get an opportunity. Do I put it past them? Absolutely not. Um, That would not surprise me uh, at all uh, in terms of uh, his work ethic, his dedication, um, his love for the game. It wouldn't surprise me at all. It might surprise me from, like, sort of a franchise perspective, um, you know, for them to want to give him the opportunity over some you know, kid out of college or, or, or something like that. But, um, but I know if, if that's what he wants to do, uh, he will do whatever it takes uh, you know, to at least give himself a shot. So if he ends up as a non-roster invite or something like that, yeah, that would not surprise me at, at all.
2: All right, so that was Michael Stahl, author of the book Big Sexy. You heard that from May of 2020 uh, before I, I wrap up here, I was just looking while I was playing that and you guys were enjoying listening to it. Um, I was looking at Bartolo clones career, not a hall of famer. I mean, I know the 247 wins and you know, a veterans committee down the road might be more sympathetic to someone quite honestly. I have never figured out the Bartolo clone Mets fan obsession. The home run was cool, I guess. Cause it's, this fat guy who looks like he could play in a beer league softball tournament hits this home run, but I mean he was an athlete. He was a guy that, you know, when he was at Cleveland and got brought up, hard thrower. He was not some out-of-the-nowhere prospect that, you know, made good late in his career. I mean, he was a he was the ace of the Indian staff in the late 90s, and he was part of a big trade. Omar Manaya acquired him uh, in Montreal and gave up a ton of talent including Grady Sizemore. It turned out to have a Pretty good career career. Cliff Lee was in that deal. He cleaned out his farm system to make a run at the division in two thousand two. Omar was trying to get a job. He to up getting the Mets job a couple of years later. But Omar got that job from the commissioner's office and he basically went for it. Didn't care about the future. Didn't care about the expo's future. Brought in Cologne because he was the best pitcher at that time. You know, it didn't work out. And uh, he goes on, you know, to sign with the Angels after that and the year he won the Cy Young Award, and I think that was controversial, he had 21 wins, but he certainly wasn't the best pitcher that year in 2005. Uh, it was not even his best year of his career. That probably would go into you know, maybe the year that he got traded to Montreal or he had a great year in Oakland the year before the Mets signed him. And I do remember when Matt Harvey went down with uh, Tommy John surgery, I remember that winter uh, the Mets signed Cologne his, his, as his replacement. And I was like, ugh, well, that's, you know, there's a guy that— You know, was on the scrap heap, had some serious uh, arm, uh, you know, uh, shoulder issues, I believe, arm issues. Went to some stem cell procedure that some thought was performance enhancing and was illegal. There was all controversy on that. But he was was down for the count for about five years. So you figure he's done. After he wins the Cy Young Award, you figure he's done. About five years, Yankees pick him up off the scrap heap in 2011. He does fairly well in the back end of the rotation. And then he goes to Oakland and and basically has the second act of his career from the ages of 38 to, I'm going to say he kind of fell off the cliff after 43 when the Mets let him go after 2016. He went to Atlanta, Minnesota, bounced around after, lost his stuff. But he had a second act late late in his career. He was a command guy, pinpoint control you know the numbers didn't add up and look, you know, no pun intended, sexy because he'd have like three or four good outings. You know, six innings, two runs; six innings, three runs. Then he get bombed in one game. You heard Terry Collins talk about it today during the press conference. How he was the kind of guy that said, "Hey, if your bullpen is is short, I'll I'll go out there. I'll give you seven innings. Maybe it won't look pretty because I don't have a lot today, but I'll make it where you're not embarrassed and you know, I'll be able to at least justify going those seven innings." And that's what he does. And and then you know, to me. Bartolo Colon and what he did in the postseason in 2015 where the Mets really didn't have enough bullpen. You know, Clippard wasn't living up to expectations. You had Familia. You know, Addison Reed was somebody they didn't know what they had yet. Jerry Blevins was out. So they needed that guy. Unfortunately, they didn't need him all that often because they had starters that went seven innings in Harvey and DeGrom and Syndergaard and whatnot. But those times where he needed to come in early against L.A., against Chicago... You know Kansas City, you know as well. You know they were able to count on him and think about it. he was a starter all year. You were asking a guy to transition to the bullpen, warm up, be brought in on a dime, and he did it and he did it fairly well. And and he was important. He was an important piece in the regular season before they were able to get the kids up like Syndergaard and Mats in the rotation. He was an important piece in the bullpen. Um, so he will go down as as a really, uh, for me, a good Met. Because of what he did on the field. I think of him more because of that and what he did in the postseason than about the home run or the big sexy, you know, the other cartoon character stuff that I know fans are into because that's why they're fans and that's what makes sports fun. But that's not what I'm into. I'm into like, okay, tell me on the field what Bartolo clone did. And it was, you know, he was a solid back end of the rotation pitcher, veteran arm that gave you innings was a good teammate and was adaptable and was able to help Mets win a pennant and nearly a championship because of his ability to come out of the bullpen at a time when your age of 43, 44, not that easy, not that easy. So uh, I hope you enjoyed looking back at the interview with, uh, you know, Michael Stahl from about three or four years ago and uh, closing the book on another uh, Mets, you know, kind of an alumni segment. Appropriate because of the fact that the Mets honored Bartolo Colon. Some people think it's weird. I thought it was a little weird when I said he's coming to New York to announce his retirement. But clearly, you know, he's, he he didn't spend a lot of time with the Mets. But if you look at his career, other than Cleveland, he bounced around a little bit. His years with Anaheim were marred by his his arm issues, serious arm issues, which should have ended his career. So um, I guess, you know, he appreciated the comeback and the fun times late in his career, the second act that the Mets and the Mets fans provided him and uh, good for him and good for the Coens and, and how they go out and and continue to change the fact that the Mets, you know, maybe and I don't want to overdo it, but the Mets never looked at their history. They almost shunned it. This is something that would never happen on the prior ownership because they'd be afraid of getting made fun of. And look, it's a Sunday. Even if it was during a contending season, it's a Sunday in September. It's a fun little thing. You know, they're not putting his number up on. You know, retiring his number, they're not throwing him into the Mets Hall of Fame. That'd be overdoing it. They're just saying thank you. We appreciate you. We appreciate the years that you had in New York and the fun that we had watching you play. And good luck in the next phase of your life. So. Nothing wrong with that. Good job by Steve and Alex Cohen and the Mets uh, front office and, and what have you for continuing to try to engage the fans in many ways to make this uh, a wholly entertaining product because that's what this is about. And going back to how I started this show, you know David Stearns has his handful, and this is no gimme. I know everybody's thinking, you know, this is a gimme, this is the best thing. There's nothing wrong with this move. This is the right move to be made. This is the only move to be made. Sounds like the Mets didn't even interview anybody else. But there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, if you look at Bloom and look at what the Red Sox, where they were and, and how he was viewed coming from Tampa in a similar way five years ago, uh, David Stern's better look across, you know, a little bit north, a little bit north. Look at what went wrong there. And learn from that because it's not just about the process and the inside baseball. It's about entertainment. And you don't want to get, and that's why I think it's so important. And we'll talk about this at a later date. This Pete Alonso situation is as much off the field as it is on the field. And I'm not going to talk about that today. That's that's a topic we're going to table maybe for next week. But uh, that that's a, a conversation that's getting amplified. And will get very loud as we get into the offseason. And it'll be interesting to see how that's viewed because that's probably one of the first questions that Stern's going to get at his press conference, uh, assuming Pete hasn't signed before then, So, which I doubt anyway. All right. want to thank everybody for joining me for another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Mike talking at podcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, TalkingMetsOG, And, of course, I want to thank the good folks from the fans' side podcasting for supporting the show. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy. The rest of your Sunday. We'll be back with you next week. Till then, take care, the Meet the
0: Mets. Meet the Mets. the Mets. the Mets.